Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hello, Asian Madness listeners. Can you freaking believe it's already October? 2020 has been such a weird year. I'm sure everyone is pretty sick and tired of 2020 by now, so I'm hoping next year will be, at the very least, slightly better. I also wanted to add that by the end of the month, both my podcast and I will be a year older. My podcast is turning three, and I'm turning... A huge thanks to all you listeners, Patreon friends, and supporters. Without you, there would be no Asian Madness podcast. So today's episode takes us to a place where most of you are probably already pretty familiar with. Yep, Japan. I really do tend to go back to Japan a lot for my episodes. Japan has some of the most interesting and brutal crimes like the Furuta Junko case, the unsolved Miyazawa murders, and the borderline incel dude from the 1930s. But today, I wanted to take a break from death and murder and gore. I was initially planning on something a bit more lighthearted, but then I realized even this topic had criminal elements to it. Just not your usual murder and whatnot. So when I say Japan, most people think of sushi, anime, cool technology, cherry blossoms, Toyota, and Honda. And probably some of you are thinking it. The sex industry. Porn, hentai, whatever you want to call it. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered how a culture that is supposedly so 
traditional and conservative somehow has the largest collection of porn and porn-adjacent things. If you're curious, continue listening. But be warned, this episode is going to focus a bit more heavily on history. But it's sexual history, so I bet some of you would still listen. If it's not your thing, come back next time for some more murder stories. In the meantime, let's begin today's episode. And oh, obviously, this episode is going to mention sex and stuff, so probably don't want to listen around little kids or your very conservative religious grandmother. Before I dive into all the strange, dark, and fascinating ways of the Japanese sex industry, we should probably take a look at the historical aspects first. I feel like certain cultures or countries with a strong presence or emphasis on a certain thing, be it the sex industry, a certain type of animal, or even a certain color, has ties to something historical. The sex industry in Japan did not just randomly pop up one day in the 20th century, and everyone did not just go like, uh, okay, cool. So what was it like way back in time? How did a culture that seems so conservative and traditional end up as one of the most sexually radical places? Let's start off with an interesting myth. There is an ancient book on mythology from around 711 CE, common era, called Kojiki, or Records of Ancient Matters. And it is said to be the oldest record of Japanese mythology, legends, and such. In the book, there is a myth about the origin of Japan, where there are two gods who happen to be brother and sister. And to retell it in rather vague terms, one had an extra body part and the other one seemed to be missing something in their body. So the two got together and populated the country. Nowadays, if we hear about something like this, our first instinct would most likely be, oh god, incest. But... Somehow, back then, this wasn't the case, or at least it wasn't enough to repulse the majority. It was accepted, and some would say that this could even be considered the beginning of accepting and being open to the idea of sex, regardless of the incest aspect. Like what people would say nowadays, normalize it. This reminds me of Greek mythology, specifically Zeus, but that's a whole nother level of sexual acceptance. Anyway, moving on, it's important to note that unlike its neighbors, China and Korea, old-timey Japan was never really into the whole Confucian teachings in regards to marriage. The Confucian teachings focus heavily on family as a unit, and therefore monogamy and chastity is likewise super important. The whole point in life and the whole structure in society is family, and if you add patriarchy into the mix, women have value but are 100% encouraged to stay virgins until marriage. I'm sure it's not hard to imagine the old mentality where a woman should only lose her virginity to their husbands. The old Christian views on sex was also similar enough. Don't be a hoe. Have sex after marriage. Sex should not be something done for pleasure but for having kids. You know, as for Japan, around and most likely before the year 1000 CE, during the Heian period, monogamy, marriage, and virginity were not really considered a huge deal. This, to me, was definitely surprising, mostly because I have always believed that 
East Asian culture tends to be more conservative when it comes to anything sex-related, especially when compared to the West. So back in the good old days, women didn't really have this concept of saving themselves for marriage. And even if a woman was not a virgin, it would not really affect her reputation. In the same manner, a man would not really care if the woman he was seeing or marrying was a virgin or not. This just proves that even back then, Japan was living in the future. I'm not saying they were promiscuous for whatever, but more like comfortable living their life and not bothered with virginity or the idea of chastity. It definitely could mean that they were having more casual relationships and more open to the concept of sex, not viewing it as something only reserved for marriage and child-making. Sex was done for pleasure. There's a long-form novel that was written in Japan between the year 1001 and 1008 CE, during the Heian period, and interestingly, it is also the world's first long-form literature ever written, or at least on record. This novel is called Genji Monogatari, or The Tale of Genji, and here is a rough summary of the book. The main character is a boy by the name of Hikaru Genji. He was the love child of the emperor and his favorite concubine, but because of his identity, he had to be removed from the line of succession, and he received a new name and identity. As he grew up, his goal was to become an imperial officer, but the book is not really about his struggles to rise to the top or whatever. It was more about the women he met along the way, who they were, and the things he did with them. Genji was married, but he had multiple love affairs with different women. His real mother, as in the emperor's concubine, passed away when Genji was still a boy. So his dad ended up marrying another woman, a woman who looked like his late lover. Genji initially loved this woman as a stepmother, but yeah, you see where this is going. Basically, the two fell in love, but due to obvious issues standing in their way, such as her being his father's wife and him also being married, this love affair did not really lead anywhere. One day, Genji meets a 10-year-old girl and realizes that she is the niece of his stepmother, and immediately he takes her away, and to put it nicely, he starts to raise her to become his ideal woman aka his stepmother. In not-so-nice terms, Genji was basically grooming this child. While the grooming was going on, Genji still met up with his stepmom secretly, and she eventually became pregnant. No one was suspicious of this pregnancy, not even the emperor himself. So the baby boy was born, and he eventually became crown prince. But no one except Genji and stepmom knew of this identity. Genji's real wife ended up giving birth to a son, but she died shortly afterwards. So now that Genji was free to marry, he decided to marry his stepmother's niece. Yes, the child that he groomed. Political things happened, the emperor died, and the new emperor exiled Genji for minor offenses. Genji was eventually pardoned and allowed to return. And some sort of mysterious illness then took the emperor's life. The new emperor, then, was none other than the son he fathered with his stepmother. Genji's story ends as his young wife dies, 
and he realizes how fragile and short life can be. So before anyone gets all judgy about the tale and the uncomfortable relationships, please note that this is fiction, and also it was written more than a thousand years ago. I'm not here to judge the story, nor to tell you what is right and what is wrong. I just simply want to point out the fact that this tale, filled with sexual descriptions, was written more than a thousand years ago, and it wasn't even considered porn or taboo. A lot of people viewed this as a psychological novel, where the reader travels with the main character, going through his growth and his experiences, which just so happens to include a lot of sex and romance. Maybe it even helped normalize sex and romance. Remember in the early 2010s when Fifty Shades of Grey came out and there was so much hype around it? I don't think these two are comparable due to many different factors, but if Fifty Shades made an impact in the 21st century, imagine Genji Monogatari in like the 11th century. One thing Fifty Shades and Genji Monogatari have in common though is that both were written by women. Does that surprise you? The author of Genji Monogatari, Murasaki Shikibu, was born to a family full of poets, and she herself also wrote poetry as a noblewoman. She was married to her second cousin, but two years after giving birth to their child, her husband passed away. Some say that her grief and her love for poetry urged her to write the tale of Genji. While the Heian period was chill and sexually freeing, the few centuries after that were quite different. During the Kamakura period, beginning from 1185, views on sexuality start to work backwards. While we think progress tends to go in one specific direction, as in society and people become more open and accepting, it actually went the other way in this case. This period was the beginning of samurais, patriarchy was super important, and society as a whole seemed to be very heavily influenced by warriors and fighters, High levels of testosterone, I would say. Women no longer lived freely, but instead were confined to society's new set of standards. They must remain a virgin till marriage, must not sleep with anyone other than their husbands, and if their husbands died, they were not allowed to remarry. This era just feels overly oppressive for women in general, probably because of the emphasis they put on warriors. Men, on the other hand, got to live freely, and we will talk more about that in the next part. So began the Edo period from around the year 1603. This period was characterized by, quote, economic growth, strict social order, isolationist foreign policies, a stable population, no wars, and enjoyment of arts and culture, end quote. I guess you could say the Edo period was a wonderful and peaceful time in Japanese history. Let's mainly focus on two aspects of what I quoted, though. Strict social order and enjoyment of arts and culture. Yes, strict laws on women were still in effect. Stay pure, stay faithful, stay a virgin till marriage, bear children, blah blah blah. If a samurai caught his wife cheating on him, he would have the right to kill both the wife and the other man. I wouldn't be surprised if many women were killed simply on suspicions of cheating. I don't know what would happen to women if they had premarital sex, but I'm guessing they would lose value and stay single forever or become prostitutes. Men, on the other hand, did not have the same restrictions, or any restrictions really. 
They were free to engage in all sorts of shenanigans, and during this period, classy brothels were very popular. It was also common for noblemen to experiment with other men, and not only was it not frowned upon, it was actually seen as extremely important between male bonding. So, in a weird sense, women's sexuality rights were somewhat put back or stuck in this weird traditional stage, while men's sexual rights took this huge step forward. As for enjoyment of arts and culture, well, prostitution was extremely common, and it was even sanctioned by the city. Although some engaged in sexual activities, many simply offered normal entertainment like music, poetry, or dance. There are two very interesting things from this time period that I would like to discuss with you. First, a novelist by the name of Ihara Saikaku wrote a bunch of novels and poems about sex and romance, probably the most famous one being The Life of an Amorous Man, where the main character throughout the course of the novel engages sexually with 3,000 women and 900 men. That's quite a number there. Other works by the author include The Life of an Amorous Woman and The Great Mirror of Male Love where he explores, to put it vaguely, love shared between men. I think we all know what that means. As you can clearly see, even back in the 1600s, engaging in sex seemed normal enough, except the part where women weren't allowed to do anything. While many countries back then denounced and condemned sex between same-sex couples, Japan was just living it up and doing whatever they felt was natural. Buddhist temples, samurai gatherings, any kind of gathering with a lot of men generally acknowledged and accepted same-sex relationships. Does this surprise you at all? Again, Japan has always struck me as conservative and traditional. So this past that I'm describing seems to be very much the opposite. The other interesting thing about this time period is an art form called shunga. And according to historians, this form of art probably started around the year 700 CE, but did not flourish till later, between the 1600s till the 1800s. So what was it exactly? The term shunga itself literally translates to spring painting, and in Japanese and also in Chinese, the word spring is a euphemism for sex and or lust. Shunga is usually seen on woodblock print, also referred to as ukiyo-e, usually depicting anything revolving sex. It's mostly considered a positive form of art, rejoicing and celebrating sex because, let's be honest, everyone liked that shit. Some of the art was more realistic, while some were weird and humorous. Sometimes the art showed direct sex acts between man and woman, or same-sex couples, and sometimes they were less literal, kind of working your imagination. Sometimes these art forms tell a story or a myth, so it's not just random sexual art. While it was mostly targeted for men, women would receive these as gifts when they got married, maybe to show them how the deed was done, because, you know, they're innocent and inexperienced virgins. I will definitely be posting some of them on the podcast Instagram page so you perverts can check it out. I'm pretty positive most of you probably have seen at least one of these. 
So let's move on a bit more to modern times. As many of you may know, Japan was very isolated from Western influence from about the 1600s till the late 1800s. And it wasn't until Christianity and Neo Confucianism was introduced did women become even more restricted, whereas things remained mostly unchanged for men. Same sex relationships also became unacceptable, almost to the point of homophobia. Let's just say Christianity really influenced a lot of cultures all over the world, for better or for worse. The government, for some reason, put a lot of importance on men getting off, especially during war times, and not just like getting off, but having actual sex. The thinking back then was something like a satisfied man has more potential and more energy to fight off the enemy. It's interesting because nowadays, A lot of professional athletes take a vow of abstinence prior to and during their games. Pretty much the exact opposite, it feels like. Anyway, let's take a look at World War II. Japan basically took over the entire Asian continent, and, well, these soldiers were hard at work fighting for honor and for their country. Where do they get sex? In the beginning, some Japanese women. Volunteered to help these soldiers sexually. But what happens when the demand is just too high? Something called comfort stations were set up in almost every country that Japan took over, starting with comfort stations in 1931 in Shanghai, China. What exactly are these comfort stations? They're places where women and girls, referred to as comfort women, from the occupied places. Are forced into sexual slavery. It is absolutely awful and just really sad. Ironically, these comfort stations were partly set up to stop Japanese soldiers from raping and killing local women. But come on, comfort stations is just a fancier word for rape station. These stations were found in Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. You get the idea. As you can see, the Japanese were very intent on keeping their men satisfied, even when they were off at war. The whole comfort woman situation has a ton more info, and even today, there are still disputes between Japan and certain countries in regards to what happened in the past. Well, you more or less know what modern day Japan looks like. After the war and after life had gone back to normal, Japan's view on sexuality began to soften a bit. For the women, there were less restrictions and focus on their virginity and purity. As for men, maybe because of how Japan had always been open and prioritized sex for men, the adult industry just began to boom. Photography, videos, and eventually porn style anime and manga, anything and everything. Prostitution in Japan is technically illegal. But the terms used in the legal definition is very、uh, vague. In other words, it's easy to find loopholes. There are so many types of quote unquote prostitution establishments, ranging from half innocent types, where you get female companionship, to full on sex with the woman of your choice. Many women may also freelance, and men will find them if they know where to look. The area in Tokyo that is known as the red light district is called Kabukicho. 
And if you go at night, you will see all these stores and clubs that offer companionship and possibly more. Some Japan specific, quote, prostitution include delivery health, meaning you get an escort to come to you. And the word health here is used as a term for sexual services. Fashion health, which are so called massage parlors that may offer anything short of sex. Image clubs, where there are themes that cater to the customer's fantasies. Say, if you happen to have a thing for girls in school uniforms, there is a place for that. If you have a thing for molesting and groping women on trains, there is also a place for that. So basically, the interior will be designed to look like a train, and all the women working there will pretend to be passengers where you could just outright touch or molest them. I know how it sounds, but hey, it's an establishment and everyone there plays by the rules. It's seen as a way for men to fulfill their secret fetishes and fantasies, so they don't act on it in real life or something like that. Now, I would like to discuss the porn industry. If you have watched any form of Japanese porn, you have most definitely noticed that there are some obvious differences between Western and Japanese porn. For one thing, The law states that the genitals must be censored. And this is the case for real people porn and for manga, hentai, and video games. Another thing you may have noticed is the dynamic between the people on screen. Japanese porn may be more influenced by patriarchy, so a lot of the videos tend to involve men dominating women or even quote unquote raping women. The guys also tend to be your average looking guy with very average size parts and not necessarily muscular or even in good shape. Which some argue that this is so the audience will focus mostly on the women, as porn is still mostly targeting the male audience. I have also heard that by using regular or below average guys, it gives the male audience more confidence. One more thing you may have noticed when it comes to Japanese porn is that there tends to be a lot of fetishes and niche categories that can be seen in videos, games, or hentai, and they all have their own terminology. For example, the word Lolita, while you may associate it with Vladimir Nabokov's book, that word has actually transformed into Lolita complex, a term used for the attraction for very young looking girls. It's the whole innocent look that attracts certain men, and this has become a bit of an issue in recent years as it could indirectly cause or condone underage sex and porn. Other things that are more exclusive to Japan would be kinbaku, or also known as Japanese rope bondage, nyotai mori, which is eating sushi placed on naked women, and of course, there is bukake. Although the pornography business is booming in Japan and people are pretty much accustomed to it, there is still a dark side to it and it has to be addressed. The adult video business is not just some shady ass company being run from the basement of a building. They have connections, are usually a part of huge media conglomerates that are linked to TV channels, music companies, publishers, and of course, talent agencies. A pretty young woman may be stopped on the street, and the person may hand her a business card 
They'll tell her that she's beautiful and that she has potential to be a model and to be famous. As a young and impressionable woman, I would say more than half would be tempted to hear the person out. They would eventually be convinced to start out with a photo shoot, maybe in skimpy clothing, eventually moving on to lingerie, then full nude. These so-called talent scouts will then tell these women that they will need to interact with men on camera. It's acting. It's the best way to get her seen, blah blah blah. Do alarm bells start ringing for you? By now, definitely. But imagine you're maybe 18 or 19 or barely 20. You're stuck in a room with a bunch of men, and they're basically pressuring you to do this. The woman would probably feel very vulnerable, very stupid, and scared of what will happen if they say no. Unfortunately, many young women do go through with it, and while you may consider this rape, it is extremely difficult for these women to stand up for themselves. First of all, this is considered shameful, and it would probably be very hard for law enforcement to take them seriously. As we know, many people believe the whole you could have said no, or you had a choice, or even worse, you were asking for it. In one case, from 2013, an aspiring musician was lured into this trap in almost the same exact way mentioned above. A modeling agent asked her to pose nude, just once though, saying that it will help kickstart her career as a musician. Well, things did not go the way she thought it would. She was basically cornered in a room with multiple men, and she was forced to go through with a sex scene. She actually did report this to the police, and has since then tried to raise awareness all over Japan. Once she told her story, a lot more women began to come forward, seeking help with their situation that is more or less similar to what happened to her. Data collected from 2017 states that, quote, around 27% of women contracted by talent agencies have been asked to shoot sex scenes, and 8% gave in, end quote. A 24-year-old woman, Kozai Saki, was offered a modeling job by a talent scout. She believed what the agent told her and decided to give it a go. On the first day of her on-site photo shoot, she was met with 20-plus people in the room. She then realized that her job that day was not to take part in the photo shoot, but to have sex with the men in the room. Quote, I couldn't take off my clothes. All I could do was cry. There were about 20 people around me, waiting. No woman could say no when surrounded like that. End quote. The agency made sure they convinced Kozai Saki to stay and make more videos for them, getting her hooked on tranquilizers and isolating her from her family and friends. Eventually, she left the agency, and while she continued to film independently, she was also very outspoken with the treatment she received from the talent agency. I can only imagine how many women have gone through this sort of treatment, this kind of trickery. The worst part is that some women end up feeling immense guilt, thinking that this was their own fault. Some also end up addicted to drugs or alcohol, and some others may just choose to take their own lives. It's really no different from rape or sexual assault, as in you do not expect this. If you go with the intention of having sex on camera and making money, then by all means, you do you. But these women did not agree to this, 
and because legit talent scouts are actually a thing in Japan, who would have thought that they would actually end up getting tricked? While the government has finally started to pay more attention to these issues, I cannot say for sure how much they are regulating pornography and those who become victims of the industry. Despite how rampant, successful, and popular pornography seems to be in Japan, Japanese people have actually become less interested in sex, relationships, and marriage. Ever since the late 90s and early 2000s, the birth rate in Japan had been steadily declining, and it is projected that the population may even decrease by one third around the year 2060. In 2019, The number of deaths in Japan exceeded the number of births by half a million, reaching the lowest birth rate from the past 12 years. What exactly is going on, though? Some say that working mothers don't get enough support or help from their jobs and from the government, which makes it hard for them to want to get pregnant, have kids, and have a career. The job market may also leave young people feeling rather insecure. And when they don't feel financially ready, having a family and kids may be the last thing you're thinking about. Also, in regards to gender roles, women may be automatically labeled as the primary caregiver and will be expected to quit their jobs and become a stay at home mom. Once a woman marries, her chances of getting a promotion at work decrease significantly because people will automatically assume that she will get pregnant and quit anyway. I guess it would be fine if it was their choice to quit working, but if this decision was forced onto them by society, then why bother getting married? But it's not just the whole financial and working situation that seems to be causing people to not want to get married and have kids. In a survey from around 2015, a quarter of the women stated that they just simply did not find sex fun or enjoyable. As for men, about 15% of them said they lost interest in sex after having children, although not sure if it's more due to loss of interest in their partner or the change in identity and responsibilities. In another report with more alarming numbers, nearly half of the women surveyed and one fourth of the men surveyed expressed either zero interest in sex or outright hatred for sexual contact. Over the last decade, a huge chunk of the population under 40 have stopped dating and stopped having sex. It's too much work. It's not interesting. It's not fun. A sex therapist stated quote, Both men and women say to me they don't see the point of love. They don't believe it can lead anywhere. End quote. The government, on the other hand, is desperately trying to change the celibacy syndrome. Because one, population is going down drastically. And two, in a few more decades, the elder population is going to outnumber the young people by a lot, and it's going to cause a strain in society. In a sense, the government's inability to make gender progress is partly to blame. On another note, there are probably a number of men who are romantically invested with women, they just happen to be fictional characters. They could be from mangas, anime series, they could be celebrities, or even virtual reality girlfriends. I used to think that this was a phase, like when you're a preteen and you're in love with, I don't know, Justin Bieber or One Direction. They're not fictional, I know, 
but they might as well be to the average person. Anyway, I'm not trying to be judgy because everyone has their reasons. Also, real relationships with real humans can be extremely exhausting. And let's face it, people can be assholes. At least with a fictional character, you always kind of know what to expect. And it could bring someone a lot of joy, even if they're not a real living being. So there you have it. A country that loves and hates sex, all at the same time. I hope the historical bits weren't too boring for you, as I really took some time to research and write it out. I've always found Japan's overall society fascinating, especially when it comes to issues like these, where the two sides are complete opposites and even contradicting. I was completely shocked when I first saw all those adult magazines just lying in plain sight in convenience stores. I mean, I wasn't offended. I was just very surprised. How do you feel about Japan's evolution and quote-unquote progression on sex? I definitely feel like Japan still has a long way to go when it comes to gender equality. Who knows, maybe things will take another turn again in a few more decades. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with not wanting to date or marry or even have sex. People should be able to choose what they want in life. But I guess it also depends on why they've made this choice. As long as they're living a life they want, who are we to tell them what to do? Thank you very much for being patient again and for tuning in to this episode. I appreciate all the support more than anything. Stay safe, stay healthy. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed, my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only 
new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc